welcome to Conflict Mail. I'm your host, Mary Brown. What do you do when emotions run high? What's the best course of action? Today on Conflict Managed, Andy Tibbs Pointer tells us of her experiences and challenges of being a female professional in male-dominated fields as a rappel master in the Army in the 1990s and currently as a mortician. Listen as Andy talks of her love of her time in the Army, the importance of being mission-minded and prepared, and how she found her way into the funeral business. Andy Tibbs Pointer is a licensed funeral director and embalmer with a small family-owned corporation in West Tennessee. She believes in serving every family as if it were her own. Andy is a retired first sergeant serving 20 active duty years in the Army. She holds a mortuary science degree from John A. Gupton College in Nashville, Tennessee, and a psychology degree from Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Andy is initially from Rooster, Ohio, and has lived in Anchorage, Alaska, and Washington, D.C. She relocated to Martin, Tennessee after meeting her husband, Daryl Pointer. Andy has one son, Sean Tibbs, who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma with his wife, Gia, and soon-to-be daughter, due in March 2023. Andy and Daryl reside with their spoiled rescues. Two donkeys, a herd of goats, five chickens and one rooster, three labs, and three house cats. Good morning, Andy, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hey, Mary. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you here this morning. Let's start with you telling us about your work history. Well, I did 20 active duty years in the Army. And while I was in the Army, I took a break um, after eight years and, and went to get my mortuary science degree and then got back in after I got my degree and finished my 12 to get my 20. And I retired in May of 2013, and I immediately got back into the funeral business. So I've had 20 years of being a soldier in the Army, and now I'm back in the funeral homes. What about first jobs, like when you were a teenager? See, I grew up in northern Ohio, so we had a a store that was like a Walmart, but it was called Fisher's Big Wheel. And so I was the cashier, and it was perfect because I kind of have a touch of OCD. So I was always the one that had my till perfect, like all the bills were facing the same way. And and this was back before we had scanners. We had to actually punch the codes in for the the SKU numbers and stuff. Yeah, and we had to call the 800 number for visa authorizations. And yeah, I'm sure a lot of your listeners today won't even understand the world where we had to actually do that. So <laughs> it actually yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, um, a, a lot to do and pro- probably really social and you got to see people that you knew come through and. Well, that's what I was going to say. It actually gave you more time to have some interaction with the customers because it actually took more time. And when you were on hold waiting on that visa authorization and yeah, I mean, and I don't know you remember, but we even had a little key where we had to take the um, cassettes out, the music cassettes. So, you know, you had to stop, you had to find that key to get the cassette out of that big plastic thing to keep people from stealing it. So yeah, there was a lot of time to actually interact with the customer versus today when you basically go to the self-checkout. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So why, why did you decide to go into the army? Well, I've always loved medicine and I was the whole time I was thinking about going to medical school and I went to Akron University 
go zips. And nobody knows what a zip is. I don't even know what a zip is, but you know, <laughs> so my friend Lisa and I, we went to the uh, orientation day and on the drive home, we kept talking about the sorority that we were going to join and the frat parties and all that sounded great. And then I thought, wait a minute, I have to study, keep my grades up. I have to find a balance. And I didn't think I was ready to do that. So just by chance, an army commercial came on TV and it was the old be all you can be. And it showed them running across the sunset and it looked so fun. And I thought, yeah, that looks fun. So the next day I went to the recruiting office and wasn't even thinking anything other than army. And, you know, in hindsight, I probably would have joined a different one, although I love the army, but I think there was one that maybe would, would be a little better to, to me, but um, I Walked in and the army recruiter, he was a cute guy, of course, you know, they're going to put the cute ones up there. And he started talking and I said, sure, where do I sign? And I literally had no idea. I mean, my father, my guidance counselor, the more they tried to talk me out of my decision, the more I, you know, I'm going to do this just to show them I can. (laughs) But once I got the basic training, I thoroughly loved it. I loved the military. What did you love about it? It was a fluke. Um, well, it really fit with my OCD tendencies, obviously the whole structure, um, the camaraderie, the camaraderie is just great because even when you have a really horrible situation, if you have some horrible training or whatever, everybody's going through the same thing, everybody. So you know, everybody knows what it's like to get sprayed in the face with OC spray or, you know, it's, it's horrible, but everybody's doing it. Um, and then I also like the constantly moving around, you know, every few years I, I've lived in, see, I grew up near Cleveland, Ohio. I've lived in Anchorage, Alaska. I've lived in Washington, DC, you know, all these huge places. I ended my career at the state headquarters in Nashville, um, attached out of Fort Campbell. I've just, I've always had these great assignments. So it was I just there's so much to love about the military. It's more than just going to war, believe me. It's it's great. So when you think about your military experience, what strikes you as one of the best teams that you were a part of or best boss or best experience and what was so good about it for you? It's pretty easy. It was definitely being an aerosol instructor. Now, for people that don't know, when I say aerosol, it's we were the ones that when the helicopter hovered about 100 feet in the air, we were the ones coming down on the ropes, rappelling down on the ropes. So um, I actually went to aerosol school in Fort Richardson, Alaska. There were four females in my class. Two of us graduated. Then when I moved to to Washington, D.C., there's a lot of small posts around Washington, D.C. You have the Old Guard and then Fort McNair, uh, Fort Myer, just a whole bunch of little ones. Well, they actually at the time had an aerosol school there. So the instructor, senior instructor, uh, saw me with my, you know, rappel tab. And he said, hey, would you be interested in going to rappel master school? Again, kind of like when I joined, I had no idea. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. I was the only female and I actually made it through rappel master. So I became, I think one of the first female rappel masters, the guys I worked with initially, 
it was rough and I still stay in contact with a few of them and they even tell me um that they were purposely hard on me because with me being the only female they didn't want the students to take advantage of that situation so I can remember um now remember this is like the early to mid 90s but as soon as I finished rappel master and got assigned to the, the school the air assault school um the rappel tower we had to to clean the rappel tower and do all that maintenance and stuff before the students got there so everybody was filling sand the instructors were filling sandbags and stuff and one of the guys looked at me and said hey there's some grass why don't you go over there and graze oh man I'm just like, uh, okay. I remember going home practically in tears thinking, oh my God, my coworkers hate me. What, a, what, a, you know, it, it was, you know, back then we didn't use the word hostile environment. You know, we, we didn't use any of those terms you just had to suck it up. That's what we said, suck it up and move on. And, um, but it, it was the best assignment because hindsight yeah now there's different ways of doing it but they really did do me a favor because we actually did become a team after you know the train-up session after I guess they broke me in as one of them um we did become a good team and there were some instances where some students um got a little squirrely and um one of them I mean, it almost brought me to tears right in front of them. I, I made him do some uh, push-ups because he had like a bad rappel or something. And we made him do push-ups. No big deal. Flutter kicks, you know. And one of my fellow instructors, I was on top of the tower, the rappel tower. And he brought the student up by the cuff of his uniform and kind of threw him in my face. And he said, are you going to tell her what you said? Are you going to tell her? He used a very, very horrible word that describes a female and I mean it was a four-letter word I'm not going to say obviously you know what it is um it, it was and it just the look on my face I'm sure was just like you just hit pierced my heart like why would you call me that yeah I'm a soldier yeah I'm a rappel master but I'm still a female underneath this uniform and that was so horrible but that student actually did a fatal hookup on the aircraft and he actually ended up getting kicked out of the course and he blamed it on the fact that he called me that word and that my fellow instructors had it out for him. Okay, you know what? The alternative, we could have let you repel with that fatal hookup and you would have fallen out of the aircraft. So, you know, it, I mean, hopefully now he realizes that. <laughs> But yeah, it was it was it was a whole different uh, climate back the military then in the mid '90s than it is now. So. so, would you say that one thing that you enjoyed so much about being a rappel master was the the camaraderie with the team that you had? Was it that coupled with the actual job, or was it more the people that you were working with? No, it was definitely the camaraderie definitely the job and it was also the self-satisfaction that hey I'm a female and I did this so how long, how long did you do that oh it was probably about a year I think we rotated four classes through then I had um my husband my, my first husband had cancer and he actually ended up dying and so as we had actually graduated a class the the, the day that he died we graduated mm -hmm. a class and then 
I went home and he took a turn for the worse. And then I had an 18 month old son. And Mm. so then it just, the, the schedule, you know, it was just too much trying to be a single parent and juggle everything. So but I had a great year. I think we ran four classes through and it, it was great. It was so much fun. That's wonderful. How was yeah. it being a single mother in the military? It actually wasn't that hard. And I think because, again, you talk about the camaraderie. Well, there were so many male soldiers. And, and again, this was, you know, early mid 90s. A lot of the, the male soldiers had wives who stayed home and had their ki- the kids took care of the kids and stuff. So I always had coworkers who had wives and and this was up in the DC area, so there was a lot of resources up there as far as you know childcare places like there was always something up there. So I really didn't have a problem and if, if and I didn't have any family up there, but the military was my family, so. Yeah, it worked. That's great. I mean, that's how any of it works, right? Where we help each other um, in different, uh, we have all different kinds of life circumstances and to have where we work, be able to let us be human in the joy of having a baby and the the sorrow of losing a spouse. And then in just the everyday, the mechanics of working through our life as we do our job. I very much agree. And I, I, wish that we would get back to the core of that actually. So when you think about whether it's the military or um, being a mortician, is there a particular situation that was um, really difficult for you in a particular job with a person or or an organization? There's actually one that happened not too long ago. Um, And there's still... There's still a few denominations in rural areas that are very uh, male dominant. And, um, you know, as a funeral director, you're going to run across some of those. And um, your, your, your main focus and your main job is taking care of the immediate family of the deceased. So you're serving that family. So there was a female, myself and another female that were working the funeral. We say working the funeral. Um, I was, you know, we, we get to the church and this male head of the church was standing outside and he immediately, he said, well, where are the men? Where's your help? Where are the men? And kind of looked at my coworker and I made an, an off the cuff joke. I said, oh, well, hey, you've got the A team here. Well, he didn't like that. So I was like, okay, this is not, you know, from the get-go. And everything that seemed to happen from that point forward was just, um, he would, he would, he would just cut us down, micromanage, try to, you know, everything we did seemed to be wrong. Although it wasn't wrong. It's, you know, how we normally conduct a funeral and I think if, if, a if a male would have been there, it, even, even an unlicensed male, just to have a man walk in with a suit would have appeased him and everything would have been perfect. So that, that was really rough because I had to literally bite my tongue <laughs> because I had to stop and think, we're not here for him. 
again, we're here for the family. But it really made it hard to, to keep your emotions in check when you're trying to do your job. And I mean, it even got, it was so bad to the point at the, the cemetery was probably a, a 40 minute drive out in even further into the country. And the, we, we, we call him the grave digger, the person who's out there, you know, digging the grave and everything. Even though I'm a licensed funeral director, usually when you get to the cemetery, you take your direction from the grave digger. Like, which way do you bring the casket in? Head first, feet first. Where's the headstone? They know because they actually prepared it. So when we're pulling in, he's motioning for us to pull back. And the the grave ha actually happened to be the very last row of this old cemetery. So you had maybe, a, I don't know, like a 20-foot space. You had the, the grave... Then you had like a 20 foot space and then it was a cornfield, soybean field, cornfield type of thing. Well, he had the hearse come, come around and, and hug the side of that um, field. So we get to the grave and the, in front of everybody, the minister made a comment. Um, wow, this is a first. I've never seen a hearse drive over graves. <laughs> uh, sir, there were no graves that we drove over. We drove over that space between the field and the cemetery. But by then the damage was done because the people at the graveside heard that comment. And, you know, and again, we're there to serve the family. You don't make a big deal about it. And, you know, it, it's it's just a sad situation that there's still certain, and I'm sure it's not just the religious order that has, this male dominated I'm sure there's still others and it's just kind of sad that they look at a female and think we're inadequate and a licensed female is less adequate to do the job than some man I could have gotten off the street and put a suit on hmm. so it sounds to me though the situation was not desirable that oh, I like a lot of what you said about keeping your emotions in check because when somebody else is misbehaving, that doesn't give us license to misbehave back. And so having a really strong vision for what you're about and what your job is about, I heard you say that several times, it helped you focus. We're not here about him. We're not serving him. We're here to serve a grieving family and a grieving community. And if this person decides to misbehave, that is 100% about him even though it does impact us. I mean, that's the situation, but how do you move forward? I think it's as you did, you, you clearly, you obviously have a clear mission and you're mission oriented to be able to take that kind of abuse because what you're doing is so much bigger than this guy's ego. I've never thought of it that way. I guess I just, I'm used to kind of running on autopilot, but yeah, you, you, you hit spot on. You're exactly right. I think in my situation, focusing on the family. It, this is for the family. We have one time to get it right. There's no do-overs. And yeah, yeah I, I think you really, you really hit the nail on the head to just focus on the larger picture, not the person who is having undesirable attitude. Yeah. You know, when I think about, you know, how we deal with conflict in workplaces or how we have healthy workplaces, you know, even what you said, being on autopilot, pilot, when you train yourself to act in a certain way, when you train yourself to be excellent at what you do, then you're more able to deal with the bumps in the road. And 
But, you know, that constantly comes up. I'm sure no two funerals have been the same. Um, there are different issues that come up uh, and different, obviously people grieve in all different kinds of ways. And to be able to be steady with whatever kind of business you have, it's like you prepare yourself in the normal for when the abnormal comes. And so if you can just prepare yourself almost like mu- muscle memory as to why you do what you do, you've got your mission so that when somebody is trying to throw you off track, I mean, I don't know what he thought he was going to gain. What did he want? A botched? I mean, like, sir, what do you want? You want this not to go well? You want to add to the suffering of this community? Is that your end goal? Um, right. And uh, I don't know if that's ever appropriate to say, but when someone's a high conflict person, you know, it's also knowing when to cut your losses. You know, there's no, there's no use wrestling with a bear. Yeah. And I think, I think in his situation, maybe he was just an unhappy person, even though he was, you know, to the world, a man of God, maybe he had some conflict inside that maybe his personal life was bad. I, you know, I don't know. We didn't um, obviously get a chance to sit down and have a nice little discussion, but I know a lot of times with families, when we have families come in, um, there's a, there's a fine line between, um, you know, anger and, and sadness. And a lot of people, you know, um, grief has those five stages. A lot of times people come in and, you know, especially an unexpected, an 18 year old that gets killed in a car accident, the, the parents come in and the mom is just angry at the world. And, you know, she can look at me and think and sometimes even verbalize, well, you've never lost a child. You don't know how I feel. Nothing you can do, nothing you can say just makes anything right. Everything you say they that you feel like they're taking it the wrong way. But that's another situation where I have to remember, okay, she's angry. She's not angry at me personally. She's angry at the situation and she's taking it out on me because I'm a safe person to take it out on. She can't take it out on her husband. That's her support right now. Oh, I mean, she could, but that that's her safety net. I'm a safe person, the funeral director. And they even teach us that in uh, mortuary school that a lot of times you're the safe person to take the anger out on. And that's something too to remember that, you know, sometimes when people have undesirable, <laughs> um, what was the word you used there? The, the how they look at you and talk to you the word, uh, you have to kind of think like, okay, they might've just lost, even, you know, something as simple as losing their dog that they've had for, you know, 20 years. I mean, that's huge, but in our society, they feel like they can't come to work and say, guys, I'm having a really crappy day because I've just lost my dog. And people will be like, it's a dog, you know, that we don't feel safe to express our emotions in society today. Yeah. I think, I mean, you're just so right when you said about this gentleman who gave you a hard time, maybe he's sad, maybe he's an angry person. And that's, I just think such a wonderful way to de-escalate because you're in the business of de-escalation. You've got all these emotions um, and traditions and people don't know, you know, about the world and all the stuff that you know about. And so to de-escalate, I think starts with ourself, Right. So that mm-hmm. their emotions is about them. Their behavior is about them. It's not about me, right? And if you know that, and when somebody acts out, well, there's no reason to react because you're not actually being attacked. That's all a mirror exactly. of them, right? This was all about this guy. 
And however he's feeling and his misogynistic beliefs has nothing to do with you and your professionalism. Just like the mother who has gone through the worst thing ever. Then if she's angry and she's right, that is clearly about her, not because you have, you know, of course we all make mistakes at work, but, um, right. But, but all, but be knowing when it is about you and knowing when it's not. And usually it's usually, it's not about us. You know, if somebody is having an immature emotional response, it's about them. Exactly. Exactly. You can, you can choose to fight with them and then become emotionally immature as well. Um, but you don't have to. Yeah. What is that saying? You can't, you can't control how people feel, but you can control how they make you feel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. I think that's really empowering because so many times we think, well, this person did this to me. This person treated me less than because I'm a woman. How sad for them. Right. I I don't have to feel less than. I mean, I can recognize that that's not okay behavior um, and I can put up boundaries, but I don't have to feel any way about that. Right. In fact, a good friend of mine the other day, actually yesterday, she told me, that somebody else had said that she was intimidating. And I thought, how strange. Why would this person say that you're intimidating? And we were going back and forth. Did she have any evidence for this? And I was thinking, it's kind of offensive if you don't have any other evidence. But then she said, well, actually, I kind of liked it because um, I, I, you know, because she is a runner and she's been harassed and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And she has always kind of wished that she it wouldn't be the friendly, you know, make peace with creeps, um, but be more assertive and be more, you know, uh, intimidating. Right. And then I said, yeah, I, I kind of wouldn't mind that as well. In the sense of people giving you your proper respect, people treating you as a professional, uh, not seeing you as something else. When you said that, that was exactly what was going through my head is I thought, wow, I, I think that would be kind of like great. Like, <laughs> You know, of course, I don't want to be like a dictator, intimidating like a dictator. But I think as a as a woman, when we do stand up for ourselves, we come across as intimidating. But that's not a bad thing because we're standing up for ourselves. I think that's great. Right. And (laughs) I think that as a strong woman, if somebody else thinks you're intimidating, but you're not belittling, you're not, um, you know, you're not mistreating anybody, right, right, then that that is about them. And it doesn't mean there's anything that you need to change. It doesn't mean you need to add more exclamation points to your email or smile more or shrink. No, let's have all people rise and feel dignified. And if somebody else feels intimidated, insofar as we are acting like normal people kindly, that is not a message to us that we need to change. And I it was just so funny because after the two of us reflected, we're like, well, that's not necessarily bad because she didn't have any evidence. She didn't say, you know, they said this because you yelled at them and went to the supervisor over something that you never talked to them about. There, I mean, there was nothing other than, you know, she's a strong, confident woman. That's really what it was. Right. You walk in the room and you own it. Yeah. And people say, oh, that's intimidating. No, you walk in the room and you own it. Yeah. Yeah. How about that's reassuring? That's professional. Yes, I like that. (laughs) That's good. So how did you get into the funeral business? Well, I always liked medicine. 
And I was actually doing uh, an internship for one of my college classes over at the Baltimore morgue over there at, on Pratt street, right there at the inner Harbor. Uh, this was, we had a lot of cases even back then, you know, and I always thought it was just so fascinating. And, um, one of the, the employees there was talking about mortuary school. And I just always assumed people were born into the business. You see these big old stately homes that, you know, funeral homes and the families lived above the first floor, you know, and I always thought that was so grand. And even as a child, I now looking back, I think, I think that this was my true calling. I, the, the whole medical school thing, maybe, God threw that little army commercial in my way because it's like, no, you're not listening. This is not what you're supposed to do. And um, uh, so I just, oh, okay, there's a actual degree out there. And so I started researching it and stuff. And before I committed, um, there's a domain funeral home. I know you know I'm not throwing out any personal names, but uh, this is a stately old, um, old town Alexandria where they still have the old brick cobblestone streets I would drive by this place um, like going to the airport going into the city and I'd always look at it and think I would love to work there so one day I went over there and I talked to the owner and he basically actually I had to go buy a suit because I was wearing combat boots and I really didn't have a lot of professional looking clothes so I went out and bought a suit went in and uh, he hired me and so I started dabbling around in it and but yeah, I really, really like this. And so um, I went, got my degree. Like I said, then I got back in the military because I knew that, you know, that doing the 20 years and getting the retirement package, um, that's a great thing. So I got back in to, to finish. And the whole time I was in, I'd still, um, wherever I was, I'd try to maybe work a weekend here or there, some funerals and stuff. And um when I retired, the first thing I did is um, I stayed in Nashville and worked for a huge um, place where they basically, they don't do funerals. They just do the preparation, mostly embalming and stuff. So I worked there just to kind of get my skills back up in that arena. And then that way, when I came out here to where we are now, um, I'm, I'm actually, I actually do more of that though. I, I prefer more of the behind the scenes. Um, and I know this, this might sound crazy, but because most people when they hear when I say, oh, I'm an embalmer, they kind of cringe and, oh my gosh, how can you do that? The way that I look at that is when you go to the home and you do a removal, nine times out of 10, they don't know me. They don't know Andy. They don't know who I am, what kind of person I am, but they trust me to take their loved one and I mean, I, I put them in the back of the removal vehicle. And as I'm driving down the driveway, they're on the porch. Again, they don't know me. They are trusting me with with their most prized possession. And, and that's a very humbling feeling. It really is. So when I go back, um, I know, again, it sounds, you know, cliche, but I treat every case as if it was my grandmother or grandfather and you know, when I finish and I take a step back, I, I say, if this was my grandmother's or anything, I'd do different. And um, I, I love, I love being able to do the job I do. 
um, I do some trade work, which means that like there's some funeral homes in the area that when they have a case and maybe the full-time employees on vacation or something, they'll call me to, to, to come in and take care of the, the client, the, you know, the deceased. And, um, so I just, it's, it's a very humbling profession. Um, and, and I prefer to do that because then I don't run into the conflicts with the ministers at the funerals and people, people, it, it's so crazy when they say, I don't look like an embalmer. I don't know what an embalmer looks like, but, uh, you know, if, if, if I'm walking around the funeral home, if I'm not in my scrubs, they wouldn't even know that I was the one that prepared their loved one. And that's okay. I'm okay mm -hmm. with that. I don't do it for, for the glory I do it because it, it makes me feel good when the funeral director comes back and says, oh my gosh, they were so happy. They were so pleased. They were going to have a closed casket, but they look so good. They're going to leave them open. That's why I do what I do. So that's, that's wonderful. I mean, I think having a passion, uh, and you know, that's helping, right? This service that we need so greatly and it matters so much to us can help us deal with the negative parts that come with any job and any sort of human relations, given the business that you're in with so many emotions that come from clients, um, how do you deal with conflicts that come up amongst other funeral directors and workers? Um, or do you find that people in your profession generally know how to deal with conflict? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I guess trying to just kind of envision, you know, the uh, one of the funeral homes I work for, um, there are certain times when I think egos get involved, you know, especially being out there in the front working with the families. I'm usually running solo in my little preparation room and, you know, but I think a lot of times egos get involved and, but for the most part, I can say that we're pretty good at handling conflicts behind the scenes. We might have a knockdown, drag out verbal altercation in the office. And then five minutes later, the family walks through the door and everybody's all like, you know, professional and hi. <laughs> and just, you know, a few minutes ago, throwing daggers at each other. So I think for the most part, we're a well-trained profession that knows that we can't let that negativity bleed into the funeral. Mm -hmm. It just, that affects the family. And again, I think, I think pretty much everybody that's in the business knows at the, at the end of the day, it's all about the family. Mm -hmm. So I, I can say I'm pretty lucky in the fact that people, people don't work at funeral homes for a paycheck. Mm most people, you know, they could work at Walmart if, if they needed to put food in their family's mouth. Think about going into the funeral home and wanting to wake up at two o'clock in the morning and do a removal or something, you know, so people are in it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. So when you think about your current profession or the army, the military, uh, and you think about the future of work and having good work that helps you be on mission. Obviously, Army is mission driven. Um, right. What you're in, uh, um, in the funeral service uh, profession is mission driven. 
And conflict, personal conflict with, with our coworkers takes us off mission, right? Our jobs are hard enough. So when you think about the, the future of work, are there any sort of policies or what would you like to have put in place to help people deal with the problems they're going to have with each other so that they can stay on mission? I don't know. I just, I personally, and this is my personal opinion, I think that when we try to compartmentalize people too much, that we end up segregating too much. And I think that society today is starting to labels. There's, there's too many labels out there. At the end of the day, there's four blood types. Um, you know, we, we all were, we're all the same underneath. And I just think that we need to get back, look, look back 20 years ago, the way that everybody was, I mean, you know, and if, if somebody does something that offends someone, then, then just say in a, in a tactful way that, Hey, you know, that, that offended me. Oh, okay. And be open to discuss it in a rational way. Also don't get offended. If I don't understand why that offended you, explain it to me so I do understand. I mean, you know, I just, I just feel like there's just so many opportunities for conflict now. And I, I wish I had a magic wand that I could just wave over and, you know, everybody would sing Kumbaya and get along around the, the oak tree. But unfortunately <laughs> that's not how it works. I just, I, I, w I don't have an answer to that. I just wish that everybody would just, you know how we talked in the beginning about maybe this person was mad or maybe they, they lost their dog. Instead of looking at the outside, try to dissect and think about that person on the inside. Why are they acting this way? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to have a psychology degree to, which I do by the way, but <laughs> you don't have to have a psychology degree though, to think like maybe the person that cut in front of you at, at the, red light, maybe they're trying to get to the hospital, you know, maybe they've got an emergency or, or maybe their kids home alone and called crying saying somebody's beating on the door. You just, you know, and believe me, it, get, it gets me angry, but then I try to stay, take a step back and think, why, why did they do that action? So I think if we would just, instead of just letting it, you know, run across our shoulder and be mad the whole day because, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that. Just try to take a minute and say, why did they do that? I think that's mm -hmm. it. Why? Mm -hmm. Why are they acting that way? I love that because, again, it's not about us. It's about them. So mm -hmm. if I say, you hurt me rather than why did they act that way? Again, it gets us out of being so self-absorbed. I mean, it can affect okay. us and that's real. But and I also think if we take it back around that when we think about all the different ways in which we are different, I think a wonderful thing about a job or wherever you work is that you can rally around the mission of the organization. And so then that's something you have in common. Mm -hmm. exactly. And so mission, like really mission led, not just something that's on the wall and values driven organizations can bring all these diverse people together because we're all trying to go in the same way. And, th and therefore we can actually take advantage of all the wonderful diversity around us instead of the diversity segmenting us and saying, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, or I'm about this, or I'm about that. 
Exactly. We can use all of that for this good that we're trying to all achieve. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Well, Andy, thank you so much for being on Conflict Manage. Well, thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. It was it was great. Well, a lot of fun. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Conflict Managed. If there is someone you would like interviewed for this show or if you have any questions, please let us know. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. You can find them online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.